0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce The Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash Track, And thanks.
1: This week we're very happy to have as a repeat guest Timo Andrus. Timo is a I will say young, because he's younger than us, a young composer and pianist in Brooklyn, New York. Timo,
2: thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Where are you in Brooklyn? I'm in Williamsburg, which I think is prob- probably the same place where we last talked. I've been yeah. here for about five years.
1: Yeah, it, it's funny because m- my father grew up in Brooklyn. And going to Brooklyn, his, uh, he grew up in Greenpoint. And going back there, ah. it, was, it was like it was like some of those areas in the sopranos and, and you didn't think of them as hip. And when I left New York in 1984, the Brooklyn Academy of Music had been around for a few years, so it was starting to get hip on the Manhattan side of Brooklyn. But I spoke to someone not long ago who's who's in Greenpoint and it's suddenly very hip down there. It's a big change.
2: Well, I don't know about suddenly. Uh it's sort of been a, a s- slow progress over the past couple of decades. Um over the past 3 decades, I I guess. Um You know, I know back in the 80s, the Brooklyn Academy of Music had a really hard time getting people to come out from Manhattan, because that was where their audience was. And of course, now the audience is uh, very much in Brooklyn, right around them. Um, I mean, Greenpoint, I'm actually just south of Greenpoint, um, so I spend a lot of time up there. And uh, I have to say, I like that neighborhood quite a bit, because it does kind of retain... Some of the old flavor of uh, what it used to be. I mean, there's a very, very strong uh, Polish culture there still, which I gather was you know, probably the case when, when you were young.
1: Yeah, when we visited my grandparents, we would go to the Polish deli around the corner to get kibasi and bring home.
2: Mm-hmm. It's, there's still very much that aspect, which is not so much the case in Williamsburg anymore. It's, it's pretty unrecognizable.
1: So, we're talking to you from your home where you have been, like many of us, confined in isolation, quarantine, lockdown, and... Yeah, about two oh, months now. Yeah, it's it's about uh, it's about seven weeks here. It's about two months for you, because mm-hmm. um, New York locked down sooner than the UK. Just, Doug yeah. hasn't been really locked down at all, have you, over in Boston?
0: We shut down the weekend before St. Patrick's Day, so... Two months. Oh, that's right. You canceled St. Patrick's. That's right. Day. Yeah, yeah. It was a big deal. Although, and same I, yeah. in Brooklyn. I did get to see uh, the Dropkick Murphys do that live stream on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> nice.
1: <laughs> well, You mean live on the internet?
0: Yeah, yeah. live it, on the internet. It was great,
1: though. Was really great. Classic Boston experience. So, Perfect. so how is the lockdown treating you?
2: Well, you know, uh, can't really complain. Um, we're healthy and and you know uh, have enough supplies uh, for the most part. Um, you know, um, so my my partner is a doctor, so um, she ha- and she works in a hospital, um, actually as a psychiatrist in oh. a hospital. Um, Still so a bit stressful these times. Very stressful. I mean, everyone's uh, as as stressed out as can be. Um, so you know, you don't you don't necessarily think of psychiatrists as being quote on the front lines. Um, but, you know, in a way she is, um, so, um, yeah, that that's certainly tense, and, and, and uh, my younger brother works in a hospital, also in New York, um, so, you know, everyone's remained healthy uh, so far, so very thankful for that. As for me, you know, I'm just sort of uh, trying to maintain an even keel, you know, invent these sort of projects for myself to do in the absence of uh, performance work and the sort of uncertainty of future composition writing work. Um, And I have a handful of composition students at the New School um, who I've been teaching remotely. So uh, yeah, but it is definitely a very, very, very strange experience.
1: We've spoken to a number of musicians
2: you're actually one of the youngest we've spoken to.
1: You and Alina Ibrahimova were both born in the same year. And so we've talked to some musicians with longer careers, Stephen Huff, Angela Hewitt. And for a lot of them, mm. there's a combination of, oh, my God, what's going on? But you know what? This might not be that bad to take a break, to let things go. And funnily, Angela Hewitt had been planning to take a sabbatical from July to the end of the year. So it just moved up a couple of months for her. But there is a mixture of people who are, in some ways, happy to get off that conveyor belt.
2: Uh, I, I definitely understand that feeling. I mean, I do think there's a little bit of a tendency in the classical music world, pro- and probably in in most of the arts, that, you know, the the... the omnipresence is is self-reinforcing in a way. And so once you've achieved a sort of level in your career that you have steady work, then that that in and of itself sends more work your way. And so these people do yeah. tend to get very, very busy, very overbooked. And, uh, you know, burnout is certainly an issue. I mean, um, For me, that wasn't so much the case. I'd sort of... I always have to plan a season sort of uh, with an eye to the balance between writing and practicing. Um, Right, so you're being a composer means you're not spending all your time performing on the road. So I don't tour nearly as much as, you know, someone who's a full-time performer. Um, And so I kind of... I. I feel like I generally have a slightly more sane lifestyle than a lot of those people. Um, And I I had actually planned this season as a particularly light one for composing because I had the Carnegie recital uh, kind of at the end of the season, and I knew that I just really wanted to focus on that. And I I had a number of dates leading up to that uh, as sort of you know, tryouts of the program because it was a new program for me. Um, so, you know, best laid plans, I guess. How
0: much of your uh, schedule got wiped out? We've talked to people who are, you know, booked for things two, three years in advance. Does your calendar look that far ahead?
2: It, well, it it does for some things. I mean, um I definitely have things. Yeah, like a year from now that you know, I they're, they're on the books as of today, but who knows, you know, th- things can change. All of all of my stuff through about August has has been canceled. Um but you know, the fall it's like I'm looking at those dates kind of like, well, if they happen then great. <laughs> you know, that'll be a nice surprise. Uh but I'm kind of not, I'm trying not to get my hopes up too much. Um, and then in terms of writing, you know, that tends to be, for me at least, the thing that's a little bit further ahead. So, you know, I, I have some writing projects that are floating kind of hazily in the future, uh, two years, three years out. Um, but of course those didn't really have deadlines attached to them anyway. That's that kind of comes later so you know I there, there's definitely a, a hope of being employed in the future uh, fully employed um, I, I guess that's
0: what I was getting at
2: yeah I, 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 I'm, I still uh, am optimistic that we'll pull through this and sort of figure out ...new ways of working around it in the meantime.
0: How about commissions? I imagine that's the sort of thing that's uh, it's evolving.
2: It is. very. It's very much so. Uh, so I actually... I, I just agreed to write a piece for actually a, a family of musicians... ...who are under quarantine together in Los Angeles. Um, a clarinet quintet, if you can believe it. So string quartet plus clarinet... Um, and it just so happens that this family is, you know, all together and, of course, all of their summer festivals and everything have been called off, so, you know, they're, they're in it for the summer, I'm in it for the summer, um, and we were sort of uh, put together by um, someone who's a, a, a patron of New Music, uh, a friend of mine from years back, who sort of played matchmaker and said, "Well, you know, I know this family, and they have been uh, doing some YouTube concerts, and so the the plan is to write uh, so a sort of modestly sized piece, uh, nothing too um, demanding, and record, it, do home video, home audio, and uh, just release it on YouTube when it's when it's ready. So hopefully, you know, we'll see uh, the fruits of that and." a couple months
1: I want to know how the family managed to get the kids to play cello viola two violins and clarinet
2: so it's actually so the two parents are violinists yeah and then the the kids are clarinet viola cello so yeah I mean that is kind of amazing I don't know the full story there but it's it's kind of a perfect group and I and actually clarinet quintet as you know is kind yeah not exactly not uh, uncommon well it's It's not exactly a frequently uh, written-for group, but it is kind of like... There are a handful of very kind of famous pieces for it. Yeah, there's a
1: Mozart clarinet quintet.
2: The Mozart, of course, the Brahms. um, Didn't Hummel write for that as well? There were some of those... Your guess is as good as mine. Yeah, there were some
1: of those composers. I know I've seen recordings, clarinet quintet CDs with multiple things on
2: them. Mm Mm-hmm. But... It is a, a wonderful sound, and uh, it's actually something I'd, I'd kind of always um, wanted to write for. I, I, I love the clarinet, but I haven't really written much for it as kind of like uh, a, a showcased instrument, more sort of in the context of orchestras and, and things like that, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it.
1: Is this lockdown the time to sort of write the musical equivalent of Infinite Jest or something? <laughs> the, you know no. I, I, I can understand the, the lack of inspiration, and a lot of people are going through this. I mean, even you know, even us and, and my partner lately, she spends a lot of time gardening, but it's like there are days when you're just wondering what it is. So I, I think my own sequel to "Infinite Jest yeah. won't happen right now in the lockdown. But th- does a composer get that kind of itch thinking, wow, I've got all this free
2: time? Well, I, it, it's very day-to-day for me. I mean, uh, so, yeah, some days I wake up kind of motivated and inspired and, and with a kind of like, oh, anything's possible. Mine's, you know, no, I'd, I have no immediate responsibilities, and therefore I could work on like any number of different projects that I've either been postponing because uh, because of lack of time or, you know, some new thing that this, you know, all, all this sort of remote distancing uh, makes possible. Um, and other days, you know, it just sort of feels like I'm, I'm being swallowed by the void. Um, yeah. So, and you just turn on Netflix. Yeah. Or, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yesterday was sort of one of those days. And I, I never know... Kind of when it will hit uh, might have something to do with the weather or even just like uh, I don't know any number
0: of trigger triggers the day's
2: news the news yeah, is, yeah definitely a, a a pitfall
0: well um, well one of the things you've been doing is performing but not live and not streaming live but recording your stuff and putting it up online and that's one of the things we wanted to talk about mm-hmm. because you know we're ex-AV club guys, you know, and um, we're totally into the uh, DIY cottage industry that musicians find themselves a part of now in order to be seen and be heard and stay relevant and whatnot. But there are also the changing ways of reaching an audience. Now, we assume most musicians at home have a bit of recording gear to record themselves practicing and that sort of thing. But how much experience uh, did you have with, with home recording?
1: Before you answer, let me just give some intro. What you did is you had a recital for Carnegie Hall that you mentioned before. You had the program, and since you couldn't perform it, you decided to record it. But instead of doing a live stream, you made individual videos for each piece. And we'll link to that in the show notes. You can watch all of it on YouTube.
2: That's right. So pretty early on in the quarantine, um, I'd say about a week in, um, I had gotten the email from Carnegie Hall saying, you know, we're going to be closed through May 15th. I think it was. Um, and my concert there was April 29th. So I kind, of, you know, I, I was certainly, uh, hugely disappointed to, to hear that if not surprised. Um, and, you know, I was sort of commiserating with friends, um, saying, like, uh, oh, you know, I, I did all this work. Because that, that's the thing. I mean, when you're preparing a recital like that, it's like, it actually, the work goes back months, you know, if not years. Selecting the program,
1: some of the pieces you right. commissioned.
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Working
1: on them, setting up the, the playlist, as it were, the order.
2: Right, which is something that I, I always put a great deal of thought into and is... I, I kind of think of these programs as artistic statements in and of themselves you know not even uh, taking into account the performances and interpretations themselves just the programming um, and this one in particular can be traced back kind of to 2017 um, when uh, so uh, when I premiered some of the pieces on it um, And so, you know, I'd been anticipating this for a really long time and I, you know, some people suggested like, uh, oh, you you know, you should do a live stream of the concert on when it would have happened. Um, and I, I had actually tried doing that. I'd played through it for, um, my parents and a couple of friends over Skype, uh, maybe a week earlier. And you know it was not well, it was Skype to start, yeah, exactly, I mean it was not exactly, even though I'd actually set up some some audio gear for it and and was not just you know using my iPhone microphone or something, um it didn't seem to me like it was a terribly satisfying musical experience really, for anyone yeah. involved. Um, It stunk, in other words. Yeah, (laughs) And not just because I wasn't ready. But, uh, yeah, so I I kind of... And and just sort of the idea at that point of, like, maintaining my practice schedule for another month just to do a live stream like that was, like, too depressing.
0: I just... I I like the idea of taking the energy you would use for a performance, for a a live concert mm -hmm. performance... And then you broke it down. Well, yeah. I mean, th- here's the thing. It's like, I'm not... Uh,
2: I, don't, I don't know. I, I guess... I Well, I am a professional performer, but I'm not, like... Uh, I'm not a full-time pianist. I'll put it that way. And, like, I... Practicing is always going to be less interesting for me than writing music. It's Like, that's just all there is to it. Like, there, it's just a... There's an element of practicing that is sort of mechanical work that you learn. You have to just sort of do th- these things over and over and over, and maintaining that consistency, that uh, that routine almost is is really really important.
1: Is that the same for your own compositions, yeah, or is that is. something
2: you just feel for other? compositions? No, okay. it's very much the same. I mean, I, I, it sounds unfair almost, but I, I have to practice my own music that way too. Um, yeah and so that you know there's an aspect of practicing that's just always going to be less attractive than spending time writing and the only reason i do practice is because i want to make a really polished thing for audiences you know that's very important to me and it's uh it's important to me as a composer that you know people other people practice my music um but you know, in the absence of that concert situation that that kind of in real time in real life uh, not not just sort of communal experience but but sort of pressure, um, I just didn't think that I would be able to maintain that that interest and that that rhythm and practicing. So
1: was this uh, your first solo recital at Carnegie Hall? It was, yeah. Yeah, okay. It's not the big Carnegie Hall Theater; it's the smaller one, right?
2: Zankel downstairs, right. but it's still um, Carnegie Hall. Yeah, and, and you know, how I've, do you get I've, to Carnegie I've, Hall? You practice. <laughs> there you go, uh, or you take the Q train. But yeah. Um, the yeah, so so the idea of like wanting to present something really polished stuck with me, and I I was kind of thinking like, oh, how should I do that? You know. Um, and so it just really felt like the right thing to me to like document the work that I'd done to make these videos not in real time. So I, I sort of recorded the entire program over the course of a month or five weeks um, and little by little just kind of worked up each video. Um, and that that way, you know... I was able to kind of focus on practicing one thing at a time and the other things were, were sort of in my fingers. So it was less, less of a practicing burden and more of a sort of uh, production burden, I guess. It was so, sort of a way of shifting the, um, shifting the work into multiple forms. So um,
1: when you felt you had practiced something enough, then you could film it, and then you could look at it, and that would also tell you if you'd practiced it enough,
2: right? Very much so. So you know, some some days I would, I would record something and uh, it's kind of like do a bunch of takes and and listen through and say, you know, I don't think that's good enough. It doesn't doesn't sound good enough, and then give it another couple days and try again, um, and. Yeah, it it did uh, go right right down to the wire. You know, I think that um, the Copland Sonata was maybe the last thing that I recorded a couple days before the 29th. Um, and that's
1: the longest work at, what is yeah. it,
2: 22 minutes or 23 minutes? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that was sort of the anchor of the program. So it felt in a way right that I should work up to it in a way and i and and i started with the the shorter the the set of i still
0: play pieces did you um approach it because you've made you've made records before yeah did you approach it like a recording session or is it different from that also
2: you know it that's an interesting question i at first it felt different and much less sort of formal much less rigorous um And then by the end, as I kind of was working up toward the the larger, longer pieces and getting more deeply into the production side of things, it did actually begin to feel like a real recording session. And I would sort of have to plan my whole day around doing these pieces and, you know, very much try to give myself the kind of rhythm that a good producer would bring to a session because that, you know, usually of course you're working with a producer and an engineer and, and it's like the, a good producer will like part of their job is to know how to get the best performance out of you. And like that motivation that to have that person motivating you, it's almost like having a, Or how I would imagine, like having a coach is, if you're an athlete, it's like they know when to when to give you a break, and they know when to push you. Uh, A good producer will do that, and being your own producer, it's like, how do you do that? You know, you really have to. be aware of your not just your mental state but your physical state because it's very easy to sort of push oneself into unhealthy kind of um, especially when you get frustrated maybe something's not going right Um, you can push yourself into maybe doing something over and over in the wrong way and that's just very physically unhealthy
0: Um, seems to me that's the day the producer and the engineer and the talent all take off and go watch netflix (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's like you need to, and it's you know, especially when it's like we're stuck in our own ha- own houses. It's like, what do you do? Because usually yeah, you can't go out and take a walk. You can't exactly. Yeah, and that's usually a, actually a big part of my process. Is like yeah. you know, go outside, do the do the shopping, do the errands, just take a walk, to go for a run, whatever. Um, and all of that stuff is like so fraught with <laughs> with yeah. stress now. Um, yeah, so so it it did kind of end up becoming um, these little recording sessions that I was running for myself, and so I've sort of remade the living room into a kind of recording studio. Um, so yeah, so, and so the, we and can then, see
1: we can see in the videos that your apartment is tastefully decorated.
2: That you have, <laughs> that you have a cat. What's the cat's name? The cat's name is Milou. Um, the cat is. Uh, we we generally just call it the cat because there's only one. Right. Um, but yeah, the cat uh, the cat hates it when I play the piano. Actually, so that wasn't really an issue for recording. Uh, but yeah, but then when I was doing my little spoken intro, it it was uh, playing around in the background, and I d- didn't notice that at all until I went to watch the video. So do you yeah.
0: recall the um, in the '70s the idea of the electronic cottage? Hey, Doug, he wasn't born in the 70s, but go ahead. (laughs) I'm (laughs) talking to you. I'm talking to the other old guy. The Marshall McLuhan stuff. Well, I'm not sure if it was McLuhan, but it was... um, The idea of the Electronic Cottage was that people work from home, and we would be all connected electronically, and we would have networks to supply information, and we would send stuff out from our homes, and, you know, we would become our own producers and our own engineers, and we would, you know... Be doing all of this at home.
1: They've got to provide mm. refreshments in the green room.
0: Yeah, <laughs> they've got to take care of the
1: clothes. They've got to do everything. I was even
2: yeah. uh, tuning my piano uh, between between uh, takes. Um, I, yeah, I mean that's interesting because uh, that you bring up Marshall McLuhan because uh, I've actually been thinking a lot about Glenn Gould, um, who of course after a certain point retired from live concerts and you know just to focus on recording and was really one of one of the first if not the first uh, classical musician to kind of embrace the recording studio as an artistic tool in its own right and you know you had you had uh, um, more like popular musicians using the studio to sort of build up songs
0: and and do these layering things. Well, the Beatles and George Martin, who was a classical producer, used a studio like that.
1: But for Glenn Gould, this was even before the Beatles were doing that. I guess stuff. that's true, yeah. And and remember, it was all analog, and I've seen a lot of the documentaries mm-hmm. where either him or the producers are there with the x knives cutting the tape and splicing it together. Yeah. It was fascinating.
2: Well, and he he was someone who really, who had a deep understanding of the recording process and really thought about it as an extension of his interpretation of his, his creativity. And what's funny to me is that that didn't really start a trend. You know, I, I mean, one of the, one of the slightly frustrating things for me about the classical music world is sort of how the recording process is very much just focused on creating a a simulacrum of the live experience and that there are not many people out there who are kind of trying to go beyond that. I mean, there are a few. I'd say uh, Theodore Corensis, the conductor, um, is one of the few people who really are uh, expending a a huge amount of time and effort and and money on making these recordings, And, and his recordings are absolutely amazing, just like hair raising Um, and it always kind of seems like a shame to me that classical music is just so focused on like, you know, finding the perfect sounding hall and just like trying to create the absolute most faithful image of being a concert goer Um,
1: Well, it's an experience of uh, not religion, but there's this what's the word? In French, idolatry, Idolatriism? What do we say in in English? Of of you, you see your idol on the stage up above you, and yeah. you applaud, and then you're quiet, and the music is there, and then you applaud again, and maybe if you're lucky, you go backstage right. and you have it's
2: champagne. Very much going back to uh, Wagner or, or even Liszt, um, that that tradition, and you know, I I do think that this kind of concertizing from home has given us a bit of a chance to maybe rethink that in some ways and for me part of this process was okay i'm doing my own recording like i have control over everything um i have control over the way my sound is delivered to the listener now in a way that i only had partial control before so how can i use that and um You know, part of this process was me kind of learning how to record my piano better to get the best sound out of it, and to get how to get the best sound for the particular music, for the particular piece, and And so. And in an
1: environment which really isn't suited for recording, let's face it, a recording studio is set up to you know absorb the sound to not have strange reflections, Mm -hmm. to not uh, enhance or or minimize certain frequencies.
2: Yeah. And I'm 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 lucky in certain ways in that I have a very quiet spot um, with not with no adjacent we don't share walls with any neighbors um, we're kind of sheltered from the street uh, kind of in the in the back house of a of a building um, and I have this fairly you know not not. A, not a strangely shaped room, and it has like a lot of soft um, surfaces in it um so the sound is pretty well absorbed i don't i don 't get weird echoes or anything um, but
1: just think of the kg
2: in nature if you
1: did have that street noise coming in that would be part of the 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 locality of the performance that would give it a uniqueness too
2: well and um you know in a lot of people 's home recordings uh that I've been listening to, the thing they have in common is sirens, and uh, the the ambulance sirens are, for, you know, from the very early days of the lockdown, like just sort of a constant kind of like in the background, this subtle
1: reminder of what's going on out there.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and that is, you know, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> it's It's definitely yeah. a it's yeah. eerie, yeah, so yeah, your yeah,
1: piano yeah. in on your blog I'll link to the blog post where you talk about this and the page on YouTube you talked that you were loaned a Bosendorfer piano. do you not have a good piano
2: in your home normally oh no so the 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 Bosendorfer was that was supposed to be for the Carnegie concert um they they will send. A piano um, to the hall. If you decide you don't want to play the house Steinway, um, and since I'm a, a Yamaha Bosendorfer artist at the same company now, um, I was like, "Oh, I have this particular Bosendorfer that I know I really love in their studio in New York um, that I knew I wanted to play for the concert." So you know that did not, of course, end up happening but i also own a bosendorfer at home and that is a actually a very very old bosendorfer that belonged to my piano teacher um so i played it growing up and um it's a uh, we we go back a long way um yeah. so in a it's way an old friend. yeah 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 in a way it was great to be able to play this instrument that i'm so familiar with um kind of for a concert and you know, there there are historical examples of, like, pianists taking their own pianos on the road. It doesn't happen well, much. like Glenn
1: Gould, for instance. Right. We're um, going to talk about him again. You know, Harwitz, He had that specific Steinway.
2: Uh, Horowitz, I think, did... Uh, had several Steinways. Um, there... Yeah, Angela I mean,
1: Hewitt had this Fazioli that she loved until it got broken last year.
2: Right, right. I heard about that. Um, yep. Christian Zimmerman, I think, uh, used to travel with a Steinway. But it's not... It, for... It's not
1: economically feasible for the vast Un- majority. Unless you're people. at the, you know, the highest echelon. Yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Pianism.
2: So, I, you know, I always kind of have this thought, like, I, you know, I really think the best that I ever play is sometimes when I'm just at home on my own piano in my own living room just by myself. You
0: know, I really right, so you
1: don't have to adjust to a new piano in a studio or mm-hmm. in a performance hall you you know how it's going to react all the time
0: you slide right into that world
2: yeah and yet there is something about the process of recording oneself that immediately changes that you know i'm it's not it's no longer the relaxing thing that just playing for yourself in the living room uh usually is um so i def that was definitely something that was a bit frustrating and and continues to be actually it's like how do i I know there must be a way, and maybe it's just a question of getting used to it and just doing it all the time, of truly letting go, of tr- truly having that performative, interpretive freedom, um, and I, you know, I think that's what we're always trying to capture in live performance in a way is to just like totally forget the audience is there totally forget that we're in this strange situation of being like up on the stage with lights and everything and like uh and and just sort of playing as if one is uh alone in in the living room so that as if the music plays itself exactly yeah because you you want as few kind of mental barriers between yourself and your ideas about the music and your kind of physical motions as possible. Um, so so what was interesting in particular with this program is that there's a big chunk of the program that was actually written as music to play alone in one's living room. And um, Right. And this was commissions.
1: For an album of music for the founder of nonsuch Records.
2: Yeah, uh, yes. I I'm not sure he is the founder, but longtime chairman, uh, thirty years or something, and um, who retired in 2017 or uh, became like chairman emeritus or whatever uh, some some title. Um, so we got together. Uh, Eleven None artists got together to write him this uh, kind of songbook um, he and he's a, a an amateur pianist, long time amateur pianist, and uh, it's a big part of his life. So, yeah, eleven new pieces, um, and they were premiered at at Brooklyn Academy of Music actually in 2017, and I ended up premiering uh, seven or eight of them, I think, um, and then I ended up recording. Uh, those same ones a year ago so that record is coming out actually in just a a week or so I think the 22nd Um, and so those pieces also became the basis for my Carnegie program Um, which was it's kind of a funny dichotomy that you have these pieces that were written for you know a a non-professional to be sort of playable for their own enjoyment at home yeah very very much at like home, yeah. throwback to the 19th century kind of um kind of salon music or you know it was a sort of
1: schubertia exactly
2: yeah 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 i think that was very very much the the idea um to have these pieces be then um the sort of core of, of a very public performance um, it oh, it it struck me as a kind of interesting dichotomy so i had structured the program using these small um interstitial pieces to break up larger kind of more extended maybe more virtuosic more more i guess public facing works um and that's something I like to do a lot: is to to kind of intersperse programs in that way, um, b- between smaller and larger pieces. Um, so it was funny in a way to have this program in the end come back to the living room, you know, to have these pieces end up in a way where they started, um, and it felt weirdly uh, correct you know to to have me playing these things alone in my living room and to have it kind of being remotely sent out to all these other living rooms uh you know all over the world and uh that that body of work which is collectively called I Still Play and the album is called I Still Play um became this kind of yeah almost almost like a a, a quarantine songbook or a, a, a touchstone in a way um, and I, I really feel like I, I got deeper into those pieces in a way by having to go through that process again, you know, because I'd already recorded them a year ago and then here I was going, <laughs> going but, over but it again in the
1: aseptic situation of a recording studio looking for perfection whereas here you were looking more for
2: yes. a feeling Right? Very much so. And, you know, perfection is, of course, a kind of a goal, I guess, with the practicing for a program like this, but obviously never attainable. So, you know, while I had the sudden ability to edit and to do multiple takes and to sort of cut cut between things and decide what I liked and what I didn't, I didn't want it to i i i knew that the finished product was not going to be that kind of polished studio product and i didn't want it to be um i i there were things that i left in that i wouldn't want on a like a commercial record certainly um that just were things that went by sort of in the course of a performance, and it was maybe the overall performance that I really liked. Um, and if there was a drop note here or there, then so be it, you know, fine. Um, but I did it did afford me the opportunity, as we were touching on earlier, to take different approaches to the recording and to the um, to the Post production to the the mixing and mastering, um, and so that was something that I got into more and more as it went on was to to kind of really try to take an individual approach to each piece and say like what it like what is the acoustic space that this piece wants to be in because like I didn't like I I knew that I wanted more than just to recreate the experience of hearing them in my living room. You know, my living room, as we said, is not a great concert hall, so, like, why pretend? Um, But
1: it is a great concert hall for a concert in a living room. Like, when Schubert played his music in salons, it didn't matter that they didn't sound like Carnegie Hall. It mattered that this was the space where the music was being performed. Mm -hmm. And I think classical music tends to forget that in looking for this perfection in concert halls. They tend to forget the spontaneity and the energy you get in other spaces that's the true. thing
0: about playing in a hall though is that you're, you''re you're playing in a box that is designed to amplify the sound to a bunch of people and really that's artificial the The best way to hear it is when you 're standing right next to the piano well i think it's a di- it's you experience it in a different way
2: um, and that kind of um, yeah, I guess that, that intimacy of, of, like, the salon setting or the living room setting, it's um, something that, as musicians, you, you know, we get to experience quite a lot. You know, we, we hear our musician friends playing in their houses, and we, we sort of share music that way. But maybe for the average concert goer, is not such a common thing to experience. Um, well,
1: you can't make a living doing concerts for six people unless you charge a thousand yeah. bucks per head
0: if you start going door to door in your own yeah. neighborhood now <laughs> <laughs> you know, could be a living right, it.
2: right, well and I, I don't make a living for playing on YouTube either uh, yet, yet yeah, shall we that's say <laughs>
0: but, <laughs> that's way more houses yeah, well don't count yeah. on that um, Yeah.
2: so, you know I, I I like the idea that you know, you could get like almost right up in my face, and, and uh, some, some pieces I think I, I wanted that tight shot, and that, that closeness and that immediacy, and others I wanted to sort of pull back and, and sort of take in the scene and kind of show you really like, oh, this is my house, you know, there's the kitchen. The
1: <laughs> well in particular, so the last one in, in the performance, and it probably wasn't the last one you filmed was Philip glass's mm-hmm. evening song number two, and that's the longest shot where you see much more of the living room you see your mm-hmm. partner go in and out of the frame at one point and and that sort of ends it on a a feeling of honesty of being at home that it's no longer a simulacrum yeah. a performance for others, but this is you in your home The only thing that doesn't show up in that one is the cat
2: that and that was very much intentional I knew you know I knew that that was kind of going to be the closer, and there's something so, um, you know, it's such a simple piece in a way, uh, but I, I really think there's something very, very kind of touching in the, in the simplicity of it, especially after kind of all this um, kind of, uh, I guess, complexity and dissonance and, and all sorts of things that have happened in the program. So I knew that I, yeah, that I did want to pull back and, you know, use the, use that wide angle camera on my iPhone to show you like, okay, here's my living room. Here's the kitchen. This is just like, it's after dinner, you know, Dia's in the kitchen, like finishing the dishes. And it's like, I'm just in the living room playing. And that's like a typical evening for us, you know? That's, like, very much, like, welcome to my house on a normal Thursday or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. And the only
1: thing I think you could have done, though, is at the end you could have gotten up and walked over to the phone and turned it off and kept that on I the did. video.
2: That's it. That's in there.
1: That's in there. Oh, I
2: must not yeah, have played yeah, yeah. till the end no, that's very, I, I definitely okay.
1: intentionally kept that in. Hold on. To, to say, like, go to the end hey, yeah, I'm, I'm. Okay, so, Doug, cut that and let me just re <laughs> that. I I didn't go all the way to the yeah okay I missed the last few seconds because it was yeah. in the background. So I did. Oh right, I saw you walk around the side, but I expected you to walk up to the front. It was well. It was sort of.
2: Um, so Doug, lead yeah, that in. So the camera is kind of like behind like behind a couch on a tripod, and, and right. so I, I okay. sort of go around to the side and tap the, the button. Um, but yeah, I did because I. I don't show that for any of the other videos. It's almost like you no. could imagine someone else is operating the camera. And then for the last one I did want to show that I I go over and I I walk over and I have to turn the recording off and you realize like oh this is just it's just me the whole time. Um and and yeah, that 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 kind of like DIY I I guess the I I wanted to make it uh because it is obvious that it's a very DIY production. I mean the the quality of the video especially is like okay, this is a, it's good. I mean the iPhone is like kind of
0: amazing what it can do, but it's like still an iPhone. Um it's a convention. It's like a like a mic drop. It's the yeah. uh, it's the formal uh punctuation at the end of the mm-hmm. performance. Yeah. And it's like it would be it would be ridiculous to get up and
2: bow in my own house for no one but like that's in a way like instead of a bow it's like me walking over and turning the camera off Um, so yeah I mean the the um, but what's interesting about that video is that like there's a realism to it of like oh we're in my house and like here's Dia doing the dishes but there's also an aspect that is hidden which is the production of it And that is like...
1: But you can see your MacBook Pro on the table. So uh it's not
2: entirely hidden.
1: I see the MacBook Pro looks like an Apogee audio interface, a bunch of cables, see the microphone. Mm -hmm. So the production isn't hidden. It looks like one of those behind-the-scenes shots from a video. Mm -hmm.
2: But what you don't see is that I'm doing all sorts of kind of um, covert stuff in the production to make that piece sound a certain way and that that was sort of like the when i got into the whole like glenn Gould like studio as a tool aspect of it is that there is um you know i'm automating different reverbs uh that come in and out that kind of match the pedaling that I'm doing to to kind of make that uh bloom in a more distinct way and I'm like micing the bass notes differently from the treble notes to give it that you know cuz my piano is uh has a great sound but it's not a concert grand so it doesn't have that that real bass um so you know there are all sorts of things that I'm doing kind of behind the scenes
0: to treatments yeah you're doing yeah treatments. yeah yeah do you do post production editing so that you sit back and listen and decide to throw EQ on a track and that sort of thing.
2: Oh yeah, yeah yeah. What, yeah. And what do you and, and use, what do you
0: use Logic?
2: I use Logic and I use um, uh, a bunch of plugins from FabFilter that are um, that I actually bought just you know for doing this uh, that I was. Uh, that I think are much better and more flexible and and just better sounding than the the ones Logic has built in.
1: The the way you're describing all this makes me think of sort of like the early 1980s when a lot of these musicians were getting into this synthesizer music and they were making their own home studios. I'm thinking of John Fox after he left UltraVox Mm -hmm. or Bill Nelson. And it's almost as if you kind of want to go in that direction to do the music in your own environment like that. And is this like a trial run for something?
2: It's always something that I'd kind of had in mind. I mean, it's it hasn't been a huge part of my practice up until now. Um, you know, I've I've sort of I've had basically the same recording setup actually since graduate school. Um and you know, it's it's obviously useful to be able to record oneself and to be able to sort of make a quick and dirty like demo of something for someone who's playing your piece or um, but I I, ha- I haven't really ever done home recording in like a polished like let's release this to the world kind of a way um, so I didn't you know I, I have a little bit of a background in recording I, I worked in the recording studio um, at Yale when I was there and kind of uh did the recording and editing on my first album Shine mighty that was made in the yale recording studio um but of course that studio has incredible gear and you know uh, all the fancy microphones you could want and like an amazing like neve console and it it's just like all set up to to do that in and and not to mention like a beautiful hall to record in um, yeah, but now you can do
1: so much more, even on a laptop, than you could back then. Is that about fifteen years ago that record?
0: Yeah, at least you had a familiarity with how to mic uh, pianos. That's not the easiest thing to do in the world. Well, yeah, it's I
2: I sort of there are a number of ways there are a number of different approaches one can use that I, I've I've seen engineers do it a lot of different ways. Uh, I mean, I only have two mics and two inputs. So, like that is very limiting. Um, for Shy and Mighty, I think we had at least four mics per piano. So, you know, that's just to start with, um, much more to work with. Um, so, here it's like obviously you don't really need the room mics because there's no like room acoustic to speak of that you'd
0: want to get. Yeah. Um, right. And plus, you're going to be messing around with it later anyway. So.
2: Yeah, exactly, and and you know my my mics are nothing fancy. Like they're they're just basic like Rode mics that probably cost me like two hundred dollars. Um, hey, yeah, I mean they're solid. they're solid. Road, road they're solid. Rode mics are really good. Solid. Yeah. Um, but also very like you know they they don't have maybe the the sense of space or the the kind of warmth of a like a sure. Norman or a DPA or something. And you know that oh, But in the field of home recording,
0: that's where it's at.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And and you know yeah. eventually it's it's definitely a goal in my life to eventually have a real like home studio set up and to have a, a nice room with two pianos that I can like rehearse in and record in that's like just like permanently set up for that. Um, you know, that's still far in the future. And of course there's a I would have wanted to buy, like, all sorts of things to do this, quote-unquote, correctly. But, of course, my my income has, like, drastically just, like, plummeted. So I wanted to make do with just, like, everything that I had lying around.
1: Um, well, uh, from from the many that we've heard, yours is one of the best. Um, Marc-André Hamelin did a thing, but his wife works for, what is it, WGBH? Right. Yeah. And they got recording stuff from someone from the radio station, so that sounded
0: really good. Right, but even so, that was somewhat jerry-rigged, too, because, you know, they did use stuff that was lying around. They were lucky enough to have some semi-pro stuff at home, but they, and they also had an audio engineer with them, too. Yeah, no, I mean, a lot. a lot of musicians are
2: really just kind of figuring this out for the first time. Um I actually I have a call scheduled in a couple days with a uh a, a fellow pianist who's like, Oh timo like how like what should i do like what interface should I buy like how should tell I tell me how to piano? do this yeah um
1: so a great new consulting opportunity, oh my god, <laughs> yeah well okay be, before we finish t- just one comment and one question. I thought it was really appropriate that when you got to your program with the Steve Reich piece, you had a baseball cap on. Yeah, <laughs> that was certainly intentional.
2: That and was an homage. Yeah. What's for up sure. with the
1: chair? Well, so is my- this a Glenn Gould affectation? Of no, so no, no, no. If, no, no, if no. you haven't seen the videos yet, look at it. Timo has one of these orange waiting room chairs, and it's like the subway orange color.
2: Yeah, it's a- well, they're uh, they're old Eames chairs actually, the fiberglass uh, Eames chairs. Um, they're actually my dining room chairs. Uh, my piano chair, which came with my piano is, I don't know where it might've, might be a Bosendorfer chair, but it's like really old squeaky. Like it, it I, I love it. Actually, it has, it has like all this wear and tear much like my piano itself. Um, but it's really, really noisy so i can't record with it it's just too many chair squeaks um so i yeah I, I put in the fiberglass chair and i do like to sit low i mean i'm a tall guy so like i i always with the artist bench i crank it down to its lowest setting um you, are you know very i probably should aren't uh, you? well i don't sit that low um what? actually my, my one of my uh old piano teachers frederick chu will sit on a um just like a folding, uh, like plastic chair, like the ones you get for like events, yeah. Um, and he'll sit on these these little plastic folding chairs, very very low. Um, but no, I I I should honestly buy an artist bench for my house, but like those things are really expensive. They're like eight hundred nine hundred dollars. $900. Yeah. Um, so I find just microphones
1: been- with that money.
2: Exactly. Yeah, it's it's like I don't need a bench. Yeah, um, now you're sounding like a DIY
0: at home guy. That's right.
2: Yeah, you gotta you gotta decide what you're gonna spend the money on. And I I did spend a bunch of money on those fancy plugins. So that was sort of my expenditure. Um, well, those are nice. Those are nice treats to have. Yeah. Like, you know when you're doing yeah, yeah, home yeah, recorder. Yeah. And um, and I have to I have to tell you um I for, so going forward. I'm I'm planning on making more of these videos sort of uh not necessarily doing like a whole program at a time necessarily but certainly as I continue to um, you know learn more stuff and and uh certainly re- record some more of my own piano music and I actually have a camera coming today um that uh that that one of my um kind of a benefactors, supporters, is lending me uh, for this time. So I, I I will be upgrading from the iPhone video, and, and hopefully, uh, you know, the production values can only go up from here, so uh, stay tuned. That's not,
1: no, that's not true. The production values are really excellent because you do have an iPhone as opposed to some old Logitech webcam.
2: Well, yeah, and I, I have to say, like, I'm really, <laughs> in retrospect that uh iPhone Pro was like very expensive back in the fall when I got it but I'm like so grateful that I did for yeah. this yeah. cuz it really I mean the thing shoots in 4K for as long as you want and yeah. like it it's got a nice like like fast lens on it and um just the experience of it it's it's kind of an incredible thing I mean it handling the 4K video on it it often feels faster than when I put it on my computer. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's so smooth. and uh, So yeah, I've, I'm, I'm grateful to have made that somewhat ridiculous expenditure back in the fall um, paid <laughs> off in a way.
1: You, you never know when those investments are going to pay off.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. Timo Andrus, thank you very much. This has been really fascinating. Links in the show notes to the videos to Timo's homepage. And all the best in the future of the quarantine. I want to hear that Infinite Jest clarinet concerto.
2: That would be interesting. (laughs) Well, thank you, Kirk and Doug, for having me. It's always a
0: pleasure. And, uh, you know, all best to you and yours. You can become a patron of The Next Track by visiting patreon.com slash the next track. Two, three, four, five dollars a month from you help support us. We're an independent podcast, and we need your help to stay going. So we'd appreciate any help you can give us. It's time now for our next track picks. Kirk? So my
1: next track this week is a movie that I watched, that I rented from the iTunes store about a week ago. It's called Coda. It's got Patrick Stewart and Katie Holmes and John Carlo Esposito. If you watch Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, you'll know him as Gus Fring. The story is Patrick Stewart is an aging pianist, concert pianist who suffers From performance anxiety, he's really anxious before he says stage fright. And Katie Holmes is a journalist who he meets, who helps him sort of get back together. It's not a great movie, but as movies about classical music go, it's not bad. It's somewhat enjoyable because music is one of the characters, one of the plot points in the movie. Someone's going to have to make a movie, a fictional movie about Glenn Gould one day, for example, and that would be really good. Who could play Glenn Gould? Someone like. Matt Damon, perhaps. But th- this is an enjoyable movie. If you can stream it, it's an hour and a half. It's a light movie, but it's it's fun. So Coda with Patrick Stewart and Katie Holmes. Doug, what have you got?
0: Jorge Santana, the younger brother of Carlos Santana, also a guitar player, uh, died this week. And he wasn't as popular as Carlos, and he wasn't as much of a guitar virtuoso as Carlos was. But Jorge Santana was a guitar player, probably most well-known for being... In the band Mallow. Uh, He was only on their first album. He was also in a bunch of other bands. And I remember in the 70s, I saw him on one of those concert broadcasts that they used to have on the weekends. And they made a big deal of the fact that Jorge Santana is going to be on Jorge. So I tuned in. And what it was, was he was leading a, a fairly large band at a big festival. Uh, you know, like one of those soccer stadium festivals. And he wasn't doing anything uh, amazing on the guitar. He was essentially the band leader, you know, giving cues and things like that. But there he was, Jorge Santana. I never heard of him after that. Um, I was familiar with Mallow. Mallow was uh, one of those uh, brass jazz funk bands from the early 70s. They mixed Latin music with jazz and rock. And they they had a big hit with Suavecito from the first album. And then afterwards... A lot of the original members left the band Jorge left and did something else I don't know A lot of the guys went on to play in other bands But anyway, Mallow's first album uh, Self-titled Is really quite good So that's what I'm going to be listening to Thinking about Jorge And maybe the things that could have been But Mallow is definitely worth listening to And it's my next track This was episode number 183 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit TheNextTrack.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Visit Patreon.com slash TheNextTrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.